In Revelation 7, beginning in verse 9, we have the second half of the vision that John saw in which he discerned 144,000 with 12 from each tribe. For in verse 9 we read, After these things, after I saw that vision, I looked, and behold a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs or originates with our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels... All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four Zoe, the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might. Sevenfold blessing be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where do they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know, don't you? So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more, nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them, and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He saw a numberless multitude. In distinction to the numbered multitude of 144,000. Take you a long time to count to 144,000, but you can count. And they were of the tribes. These are out of every tribe, but every nation and every tongue. No doubt a Gentile crowd. A Gentile body, and they are in the out of the tribulation period. But the question is asked by the elder: Who are these? Who are these people? Where in the world do they come from? How do they fit into God's plan? Of what value are they? And the elder asked the rhetorical question, and John said back to him, "Sir, you're the one who knows." See, the four and twenty elders represent all the redeemed already in glory at the beginning of this period of great tribulation. And the, then the answer comes back. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We had a yard sale yesterday. I'm not fond of yard sales because it means I have to give up a lot of valuable things. And throughout the yard sale, I hid in the study, finishing work on my message, and my wife kept running back in saying, would you like to sell this? Yeah, I think she'd have sold everything in the house <laughs> if the right person had come along. So I got together on Friday night a few of my old things. I, in my closet, I, it's hard for me to give up old things. 
And in my closet, I had about seven or eight old pairs of shoes. I don't wear them on Sunday anymore. At our house, you divide Sunday shoes from weekday shoes. You know what I mean? And I had a bunch of old shoes. Now, aren't these ugly shoes? Look at those old shoes. Those are just flat ugly, aren't they? Look at them. They're all square-toed. The, the soles are about a, an inch and a half high. And you know, back in the 70s, I think it was around 1974, my kids told me I needed a pair of hip shoes. You see those, Stephanie? Don't those look awful? They're ugly, aren't they? Look at those. Old snub toe. They still got the yard price sticker on them. You can see nobody bought them. I mean, they were only 50 cents. Nobody wanted them for 50 cents. Anybody like to have these for 50 cents to the Willing Hearts campaign? <laughs> and I, so I picked up a bunch of shoes, and finally I picked these up, and I said, you know, I've kept these around. I don't need these anymore. And as I carried those shoes down on Friday night to the yard, I said, do you ever get sentimental about a pair of shoes? Huh? What are these old shoes? And I thought, you see those shoes, guy? Those shoes have been to the Holy Land three times. Three times. See those souls? Those souls have walked on Calvary. They've been on Golgotha. I mean, I'm getting real sentimental here. <laughs> I mean, they've been to the Sea of Galilee. These shoes have been to Thailand. These shoes were in Iran. These shoes were in the Philippines. These shoes carried me all over the world several times. I don't need them anymore. Nobody wanted them. Only 50 cents and nobody bought them. So when I saw nobody bought them, I started studying those shoes and it hit me that, you know, a lot of times the value of something doesn't come out of its potential, what you're going to use them for, it for. The value of something comes out of what they've been through, what they have done. And that's what I feel about these shoes. I think since nobody bought them, I'm going to buy them back for myself and just keep them around to remind me how some things are just valuable because of what they've been through. Look at those old shoes. They're worn out on the bottoms, but they mean something to me because of where they've been and what they've been through. Now, <laughs> that's sort of the way I feel about this group in glory in the book of Revelation. The elder says to John, John, do you know what these are? Well, you know. You know better than I. Who are this, this crowd? Who is this crowd? Who are these folks? And this is his answer. Don't ever forget it. These are they that came out of great tribulation. Man, they've been through the tribulation period. You have no idea what they've been through. John looked at them and saw a Gentile multitude. Jesus looked at them and saw a group who had suffered for his name. John looked at them and saw a group from all tribes and nations. Jesus looked at them and saw one body that he had poured out his blood for and washed them in the blood of the Lamb. John saw this group that was a mixed group had no significance at first. Jesus saw them with white robes. They'd been washed in the blood, his blood that he had spilt for them. And because of where they had been,
And because during this intense period of judgment being poured out on the earth, when the 144,000 Jewish evangelists are preaching the gospel of the kingdom and this crowd responded and stood true, and when the mark of the beast was placed on some, they refused it and paid a price for it, Jesus looks differently at them and he said, these are they that have come out of great tribulation and have been washed and made themselves white and pure and clean in the blood of the Lamb. So this crowd is established not by what it's going to do, not by its potential, but by its past. They've come out of great tribulation. If you start in Matthew 24, these are the sheep of the judgment of the nations that Christ separated from the goats. These are the ones. Do you remember when Jesus said, two shall be in a field, one shall be taken and the other left? He's not talking about, uh, about uh, uh, the end. He's talking about the end for the body, the church. And some will go through, through the tribulation. And those who go through the tribulation will go through great tribulation. But they too will respond to the gospel of the kingdom. They won't be in the church. There'll be tribulation body, a tribulation group, a tribulation saints. And the tribulation saints who have responded to the gospel of the kingdom remind us that all men of all time have been saved by Christ who washes us in his blood from the guilt of the past, our consciences in the present, and in the future, he provides the forgiveness through his blood, which comes out of a right relationship with God, so that we have confidence we can go to him at any time and confess and know that we are forgiven. Now look at what Jesus saw when he saw this crowd. He saw six things. First, he sees them standing. Look at verse 9. He sees them standing. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one can number. And there they are, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Now this is not the body of Christ. These are tribulation saints. These are those who responded not to the gospel of grace, but to the gospel of the kingdom. Repent and get ready. The kingdom of Christ is coming. The millennial reign of Christ is near. But here they are, standing before the throne. Now the Bible teaches that we in the body of Christ, we who are saved in this age before the rapture, that in fact we are in the body of Christ and we have a new standing before God, but we shall rule and we shall reign. Didn't Paul say if we suffer with him, we shall reign with him? We will have thrones. God will commit to us the right to judge, but these people don't have their own thrones. But they are standing before the throne. There they are in the presence of God. Their position is because they're washed in the blood of the Lamb. They have entrance into glory. They're part of that great company that Jesus spoke about when he said, Other sheep have I who are not of this fold of Israel. That's what he was talking about. And in glory, there's going to be, there are going to be saints from the Old Testament 
and Israel, and there'll be saints from the New Testament, and there'll be the 144,000 faithful, and there'll be those who respond to the gospel of the kingdom in the tribulation period. And there they are standing. No thrones, they're before the throne. They don't have crowns as we have crowns, but they'll have palm branches. It's a little bit different. They come after the rapture, but notice their position. They are permitted before the throne of God and the Lamb. I'd just like to, to remind you that one of the greatest privileges that Abraham had, that Moses had, that Old Testament saints had, that the 144,000 had, that the tribulation saints have, the saved of every generation have a privilege that we ought not to take for granted, and that is the privilege to come into the presence of God and stand before his throne. I take that privilege very seriously. It's a privilege that invites me to pray. It's a privilege that invites me to bring my burdens and leave them. It's a privilege that comes out of the fact that I've been made pure and Christ has forgiven me, or I would not be able to stand in his presence. It's a privilege that comes out of the fact that I have in some way responded to the truth of Jesus. And that's a privilege to stand before the throne. But what does Jesus see when he looks at this crowd? He sees not only them standing, he sees their cleansing. That's the second thing. For the scripture says, here they are, that they are clothed with white robes in verse 9. And they're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. And then when they're described, look in verse 13. Who are these arrayed in white robes? These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, verse 14. And washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have been through a cleansing a cleansing. Every saved person of every age is saved by Christ. And let me say that again. That's something very important to understand. In the Old Testament, before the Mosaic Law, during the Mosaic Law, in the inter interim period between the Maccabean stage and the New Testament, during the New Testament time, during the age of the church, which began at Pentecost, in the tribulation, in the millennium, every person who is ever saved is saved by Christ. There is none other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. Everybody is saved by Christ. Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Why? Because Abraham was saved by Christ. He was saved by looking forward to Christ. That's a principle in the Word of God we must never, ever forget. He was saved by Christ. Adam and Eve were saved by looking forward to Christ who would give his life so that their sins could be covered. When God killed that animal and put those skins on them to replace the fig leaves, it meant death for sin. Moses, Hebrews 11 says, esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than Egypt. Moses was saved by Christ. And these folks are saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the sacrificial lamb. The gospel of the kingdom was preached and they responded and they're saved by the blood of the lamb. 
and it's a figure that all of them understood. And they've been made white. When Jesus looked at the woman at the well in John chapter 4, and she was a Samaritan and worshipped at Mount Gerizim, Jesus said, we know what we worship, but there's even coming a day when even those who worship in Jerusalem will not have to worship in a temple because there's coming a day when they can meet God wherever. He was talking about Christ and he's saying himself and his death for them. And he's saying there's coming a day when you won't need the temple and you won't need the temple system. You'll be saved by Christ and you can meet him anywhere and at any time. And so there's the cleansing. They were washed white in the blood of the Lamb. We'll come back to that in a moment. But there's a third thing I want you to see that Jesus saw. Look in verse 9. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they're crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now underline that word voice. Isn't it interesting? They're out of all nations and all tribes and all peoples and all tongues. But when they celebrate, they are celebrating with one voice. We'll see. But what do they have? They're clothed with white robes and they have palm branches in their hands. You know, people say to me, why do you always eat so much at Calvary? And I know people who say, well, the reason that Calvary always has so many fellowship dinners is because the pastor loves to eat. And that's true. Amen. Amen. And how many of you are just like me? You love to eat as well as I do. I know you do. And uh, yet, if you understand the Old Testament worship at all, now watch this carefully. The great times of fellowship in the Old Testament were feast times. And when they came to the feasts, it was a time of celebration. And the people gathered from all over Israel for the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Booths was when they came to Jerusalem and they all built thatched huts. They were all temporary. And they put palm branches over the huts. And they lived for seven days in the palm branch huts to remind them that God delivered them out of Egypt and brought them through the wilderness in a temporary time before they settled in the land. And it was a great time of celebration. They lived in the booths, but they feasted and praised God and celebrated. And the palm branches are suggestive of the fact that the God who sheltered Israel during the wilderness and the God who received the celebration of Israel when they came for the Feast of Booths had given the same protection to these tribulation saints and brought them out of that great tribulation and into his presence. So they wave the palm branches, symbolic of two things, a reminder of the Feast of Booths in which they celebrated God's protection and they celebrated God's provision for them, but it also meant victory. They had come through the great tribulation. Imagine what these people have been through. They have seen everything described in chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10. They have seen it all. They've been through it all. And they have come through great tribulation. And that's what makes them so valuable. 
And God says, come on in. And I want you to know that I was with you in that tribulation. Come into my presence. And there they are celebrating. Lady asked me not long ago again what I'm frequently asked. What in the world will we do in heaven for all those years? And I want to tell you, folks, you're going to stand in the presence of God and you're going to serve him and you're going to celebrate and you're going to praise, but you're going to celebrate what you've been through and the faithfulness of God who brought you out of something through life and into his presence and into his, stand, into his state, into his throne. And that's what these tribulation saints are celebrating as they wave the palm branches in their hands and cry out with one loud voice. That leads me to the fourth thing Jesus sees them doing. As he looks at this body of believers, they are praising and they're praising with one voice as they wave those palm branches. There are many, but there's one voice. And notice that they are praising God because they have come through the great tribulation and they have not yielded the word of God and they have not yielded the truth of God and they have maintained the testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to see in the next three chapters some awful things as the trumpets are opened up and poured out on the earth. There's great deception. The economic system becomes even more corrupt than it is today. And out of that corrupt economic system controlled by Satan through his emissaries on earth, if you don't fit in, if you don't do certain things, you won't be able to buy, you won't be able to sell unless you take the deception mark of the beast on you. And so we may assume that this great multitude are those who refuse to fit in with the crowd, who refuse to take the mark, who refuse to take uh, a vow to the Antichrist and the world system, and who stood up for what was right and what was righteous and what was the testimony of God and what was the word of God. And that is why they're praising God, because God has brought them through it all, and they've made their way to him. You know, I've said this several times recently, and I want to say this again. If there's one lesson I've learned in the last years I've been serving God, it is that everything that comes to me is temporary, and everything that comes to you is temporary, and even the tribulation is temporary, and God is bringing them through. And that is why they're praising him. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And heaven is filled with the praise of God. And that is why we like to come into this church building on the Lord's Day morning and praise the Father. There's a fifth thing which Christ sees as he looks down at this body. He not only sees them stand, standing, he sees their cleansing. He sees their celebrating, their praising, he, but he sees their serving for... In verse 15, they are before the throne of God. And what do they do, folks? They serve him day and night in his temple. In his temple. Now, there's a lot of discussion over Bible students as to whether this is the millennial temple or as to whether this is the heavenly temple. Would these be Gentiles serving in the millennial temple? 
when it's been given to the Levites to serve? Well, if God wants it, I guess he can work that out. But however they are serving or whatever temple, whether it's the eternal heavenly temple or the presence of God, because there's really no temple in heaven. God is the temple of heaven and they're standing in his presence. Whichever way it is, whichever way it turns out to be, it is, it is fact that we're going to spend eternity serving God in some way, serving him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne dwells among them or tabernacles among them. He responds by being among his people. And so for all eternity, the believers who are the bride of Christ, the believers who are the Old Testament saints, the tribulation folks who come out of great tribulation and trial will in heaven be serving God forever and ever and ever and ever. Now, there will be different groups in heaven. We'll all be one, but there'll be the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints and the tribulation saints. And in a sense, we'll all be serving. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let me make this point. If service is God's ultimate goal for us in glory, then measure carefully how you are serving him on earth. It is critical that we understand that is God's goal for us. And that ministry, that every Christian's involvement in some form of service, not just to the church, but to God, that is the goal for every believer to make happen on earth what is true in heaven and serving and praising and celebrating and being washed in the blood of the Lamb. Those are the things that occupy the life and the mind and the attention of the believer today. There's a sixth thing, and that is they are partaking. In verse 16, they shall neither hunger anymore, nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a passage. Here is the shepherd taking care of his sheep. Here are those who refused to take the mark of the beast and they couldn't buy. I may assume that they experienced great hunger because they couldn't buy if they didn't yield to the system during that tribulation period. But now here is the shepherd making sure that those who came through the great tribulation are fed and those who couldn't get drink because of the reproach of Christ, now they're drinking at the living waters and everything, that the, every price they paid on earth during the tribulation in order to be faithful to the Savior and to the gospel of the kingdom, every price they paid has now come back to them. Christ the good shepherd is ministering living waters to them, food where they didn't have esteem, where they didn't have recognition. He ministers everything to them that they ever needed, that they ever paid a price for. Now, perhaps that's what Jesus, at least one of the things Jesus means when he says in Matthew chapter 7, be careful how you judge. For with what judgment you judge, it shall be meted out or measured out to you in return. Now, I think that means that if I judge you, 
I'm going to get judgment back. I think that's the law of sowing and reaping. If I pass a rumor around about Dean Harrison, I'm telling you it's going to come back to me and somebody will pass one back to me. I believe in that law. Do you believe that law? But I believe it means more than that. I believe that in the same way where I take my stand for the witness of the Word of God and where I take my stand for the testimony of Jesus Christ and when there is loss because I've taken that stand, when I have paid a price, I believe that God in the future, in the future for the bride of Christ, God will measure that back to me. It will come back to me. Not just the money. It's far more than that. It's esteem. It's recognition. It's food. It's drink. It's the shepherd watching out for his sheep. And then in this one of the most tender of all passages in the word of God, he says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be tears in the tribulation. There will be tears when you see your loved ones being deceived. There will be brokenness when you see your family being tricked by what goes on in this great tribulation period when sorrow is dumped out on the earth. But here's a great testimony that sorrow will not always be king. Sorrow and grief will not always tyrannize man. That there is coming a day when Christ, the good shepherd, will shepherd his people and he will wipe every tear from their eye, even the tribulation saints. Here's the promise once again that the feeding of the shepherd is matched by the comfort of the heavenly Father. Now, before I leave this text, though, I want to do something important to every person here. I want us to look at the cleansing in the fullest possible way. Go back to verse 14. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. <laughs> I, I loved it one day when Clarence Schuler, a young black pastor, by the way, who's been now elevated to, uh, and he's been given a new responsibility. He and Brenda have moved to Illinois, and he's the director of black extension for the state convention of Illinois in the Chicago area. God's given him a new opportunity. But one day when he was working with us, and we passed out some uh, you know the little wordless book that has black for sin? And uh, uh, he came into me. I'll never forget this. He walked into my office. He said, oh, no. He said, black doesn't represent sin. Don't let black represent sin. The Bible says, though our sins be red like what in Isaiah? Like what? What is it? Crimson or scarlet, they shall be as wool. <laughs> Boy, I've never forgotten that. I've never ever used black again for sin to the best of my knowledge. Now, what does he mean here? Here it is again. Here's the figure. They have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Now, that's a figure we don't understand. Modern man really doesn't grasp that. But anybody in an agrarian economy, anybody in a shepherd's economy would understand what this means. It is a figure for the fact that the shepherd has laid down his life for the sheep. 
and preserved them from going over the cliff by falling over it himself as Christ the good shepherd has laid down his life for us. So the washing of the, in the blood of the lamb is simply a beautiful symbol which means because one person gave everything somebody else lives and lives forgiven. And that's what this scripture is talking about. Now there are three ways that you and I, even in this dispensation, are washed in the blood of the Lamb, just as the tribulation saints were washed in the blood of the Lamb. Let me see if I can get to all of them quickly in five minutes. In the first place, when I'm washed in the blood of the Lamb, when I've accepted Christ and I have appropriated His blood for my sin, all my past sin, now listen to this very carefully, is forgiven. Everything in the past is done. Everything that these tribulation saints had gone through, even when they failed, that has been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Now look at Romans 3.25. Hold your hand here because I'll come back. But Romans 3.25. And Paul says, Whom God set forth to be a propitiation by His blood, by His blood, through faith in His blood, to demonstrate His righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Isn't that wonderful? When Jesus died, he died for all the sins that had previously been committed. And all of those were washed. Even those who didn't know that Christ was coming or know his name. Which is why Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Abraham was saved by Christ. By faith, he looked forward to Christ in the sacrifice. In his own son, he looked forward to Christ. And the Bible is very clear. Not only did God forgive all the sins of all the past of all the men who came into the temple system and laid down an ox, laid down the sacrifice, but God has cleansed and forgiven you of everything you have ever done in your past. Isn't that wonderful? Think about the worst thing you've ever done. Can you think about it? Think about the very worst, and it's forgiven. It's cleansed because you've been washed in the blood of the Lamb because somebody laid down his life for you. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10 and you'll see it again. Hebrews chapter 10. And there it is, verse 4. Hebrews chapter 10. In, in the great 10th chapter, we see the superiority of the sacrifice of Christ. And in verse 4, he says, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Even in the Old Testament, they didn't take away sins. What they did was point to Jesus. So when Christ, the Son, came into the world, He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared. And I've come to do your will, and your will is to make one sacrifice for sin forever. So there it is in verse 10. By that will, God's will, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So there's no more offering. There's no more sacrifice for sin. There's no more lamb. We don't slay a lamb down here because Christ went to the cross once for us. And like the tribulation saints, we have been washed in the blood of the lamb. No need for you to bring up what I did in the past or what, no need for me to bring up what you did in the past. If it's confessed sincerely, it's been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And God says, your sins, I don't remember anymore. He's forgotten them. But what about the present? Am I washed now? Yes. 
Hebrews chapter 9, look at verse 14. If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, in verse 13, could purify the flesh, watch what he says, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So when I'm washed in the blood of the Lamb, not only is my past forgiven, but my present is forgiven. My conscience is relieved of the burden of thinking that I have to do dead works in order to save myself. I've been freed from that. I don't have to join a church to be saved. I have to join a church because I am saved. I don't have to be baptized in order to be saved. I am baptized because I am saved. I don't witness in order to be saved. I witness because I have been saved, because my conscience has been washed in the eternal blood of Christ. And what that means is this, that the old idea that good works save you, which the conscience was strained on, the conscience of the Jew, and which accused them, you must do this to be saved. You must do this to be saved. You must do this to be saved. We've been cleansed from that. That's a false guilt the devil puts on you. If he tells you you've got to do something in order to stay saved, that's a false guilt he puts on you. And those of us who are running around workaholics, thinking that we please God because we work more, or we teach 19 Sunday school classes and we go to every ministry opportunity there is, you're not earning your salvation and you're not even earning God's favor because our consciences have been purged from dead works. We've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. I want you to understand that. That's immensely important. That's why some of you take time from your wife in order to run around like a chicken with your head cut off to serve God and think you're scoring brownie points with God. You don't score brownie points with God. They've all been scored by Christ once at the cross when the shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. It's over. Now, if you go back to Romans 2, your conscience does two things. It accuses you and it excuses you. Read Romans 2.15. And the conscience that accuses you, you need to do more works. That dead works will save you. That dead works will make you holy. That dead works will please God. Your conscience has been washed from that. Praise God. Isn't that wonderful? See, folks, if somebody tells me that kerosene will cure arthritis, and I think that, and every time my knee hurts, I rub kerosene on it. You say, well, that doesn't have any, there's no real relationship between kerosene and arthritis. How many of you think there's a relationship between kerosene and arthritis? Huh? So I've got that knowledge, and every time my knee hurts, my conscience tells me, my inner life instructs me, go rub kerosene on it. But when I discover, when I talk to Dr. Metcalf, and he tells me kerosene won't cure arthritis, is that right, Dr. Metcalf? It will not cure arthritis. Now my conscience is freed. So the next time my knee hurts, I don't rub, I don't have to rub a, a kerosene on it and walk around smelling like a coal oil stove. Because my conscience has been freed by the knowledge of the truth. My conscience has been freed from the accusation and the instruction that I must do something that doesn't do any good. And that's what the Bible is talking about. I've been washed in the blood of Christ. I'm, my conscience is free in the present. And I can rest in God. And I am free in Christ. Freed from the bondage of a performance mentality which says, I've got to do something to please the Father. So when I'm washed in the blood of Christ, I'm freed from the accusations of the past. 
and I'm freed from the accusations of my conscience that are not biblical. But he also forgives me in the future. Look at chapter 10, verse 12 of Hebrews. To be washed means by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. How long will Jesus' sacrifice for sin last, class? How long? Forever. Does that mean the future? Yes. Thank God. Thank God. I can go to him. I have a relationship with him. And if I realize I've sinned, now it's not automatic, folks. I've got to go to him in confession. But the provision is there. And I have this knowledge that anything in the future which is offensive to God, I can confess. And in a moment, I'm forgiven and cleansed because I'm washed in the blood of the Lamb. What a wonderful truth. Tim Lefevre is running for Congress out in San Francisco. And he lit my fires the other day when he said, you know, while I was going through law school, I worked with Young Life, and I went down to the inner city. And I gathered these young gangs around me, and I'd say, there's a loving Heavenly Father up in heaven who loves you. And they'd look at me with stones on their faces because they had no concept of a loving father. They didn't know what that was. You know, we're going to have to learn ways of communicating the gospel to people that don't know what it's like to have a loving daddy. So he said, I told them that Jesus paid the ultimate price. He gave life for them. And then he said, as I worked with those kids, one day a 10-year-old said to me, if I grow up, I'd like to be a fireman. And he said, suddenly it hit me. That's the problem. He's seen so much death if I grow up. That death is not a high value. How can you talk about Christ, the good shepherd, paying the ultimate price when death doesn't mean anything? He sees people killed. The 10-year-old, that 10-year-old, had seen seven or eight people murdered already by the time he was 10. And death meant nothing to him, so life meant nothing. And he said, I had to go back and ask, how can I phrase the gospel? But see, in the Jewish culture, a shepherd's economy, to be washed in the blood of a lamb, meant that the shepherd had laid down his life for the sheep and had cleansed us by his sacrifice, had cleansed us from oh, before God for all our past sin. The knowledge of Jesus and the truth of the word cleanses us from an accusing conscience that tells us to go do dumb things that don't have any effect on our salvation. And it provides for the future. Thank God I'm washed in the blood of the Lamb. And thank God <laughs> I've come through great tribulation. And I'm valuable to God because in spite of my past in spite of where I've been and in spite of what I've done, the shepherd laid down his life for me. And like those tribulation saints, you are valuable 
and Jesus wants to wash you in his blood. You say, how can that be? Well, it's a figure, it's just a figure of speech that means the minute you confess your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus, God takes the death of Christ, the good shepherd, and counts it as the payment for you and forgives all of your past, frees you from the accusations of the present that come from within you and provides forgiveness for the future. Amen and amen. Let's stand all over the building. Our Father, we ask that you will speak to those in this audience this morning who have never been washed in the blood of the Lamb or speak to those who are still under bondage or under condemnation and cause them to claim their washing, their cleansing, and to claim freedom from the past and freedom from their, their dead works conscience because of Christ. Call men to yourself in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.